guys, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Once you finish the season finale of HBO Succession, make sure to tune in to the last episode of the Ringer's after show called Number One Boys with Chris Ryan and Jason Concepcion. You can check that out as well as recaps from the episodes from this season on our Twitter, at Ringer, and our YouTube page. We also have a lot of great written content about the show from writers like Allison Herman, Katie Baker, and Miles Surrey. You can find that on TheRinger.com. All right, welcome back. This is Larry Wilmore. You're listening to Black on the Air. Thanks for listening, you guys. Appreciate it. A really, really interesting show today. Um, Susan Rice, former ambassador to the United Nations and Obama's national security advisor, talking about her book, Tough Love, My Story, The Things Worth Fighting For. It's such a—I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. I'm— I'm very much a big admirer of Ms. Rice, and uh, she's got this book is really cool, guys. If you like these types of bio books about politics and life and that kind of stuff, her story is interesting because her just her upbringing and her parents' story, talking about her kids and all that stuff, interwoven between you know her experience in the highest forms of government, you know, with some of the biggest secrets and all that kind of stuff in the Obama White House. Really some good stuff in there. I highly recommend this one in terms of books. But I think you enjoy the conversation we have coming up. Um, Don't have a big weigh-in today. My head just hurts from all this Trump crap. It just hurts. It's just throbbing right now. He's such, you know, I've run out of words. to. It's hard to even insult him anymore because nothing really does justice. I mean, he really is just a tool. He just is. He's just a dick. I mean, he just is. That's the most like, like, people are happy. Oh, I think there's a quid pro quo. You know what? He should just leave because he's a dick. We just, we're just tired of him. I don't need a quid pro quo. I need a quid pro go. Just go. Just get out. Just enough. My head hurts every day from having to think about you. And remember I was saying I think he's going to be reelected. But as I said, I'm starting to change my mind. And I think this whole Syria thing of, um, leaving the Kurds and that sort of thing is really pissing off a lot of the people who would be voting for him, not his his crazy base, the people that don't mind if he shoots somebody in Fifth Avenue, not those people. Those people would pull the trigger for him. You know? I'm talking about the other people, the Republicans that like the tax cuts and don't necessarily love Trump, you know, and all that kind of stuff, but they'll still vote for him. So fuck you motherfuckers because you'll still vote for him. But now some of them may stay home. Because Trump is, uh, he's just kind of off the rails right now. And for the safety of our country, God, I hope this is the the worst of the things that can happen. Not saying, by the way, even having said that, the reason why I said that, let me clarify this. The actions of what Trump is doing in the macro isn't necessarily objectionable, I think, to a lot of people. Should we be in endless wars? No, I don't have a disagreement with that. Are we placed in the Middle East in a no-winnable position? You could argue that we are, you know. Does anybody know what the true objectives are in Syria? I doubt it. You talk to the average person, they don't know what we're doing there. But the argument has always been, since we're there, we should try to do the right thing while we're there. Because you could throw the same argument against Obama when he said, look, it was my campaign promise to pull out of Iraq, so I'm doing it. People warned him, said, when you do that, you're going to create a vacuum. Bad people are going to swoop in. That's exactly what happened, especially with ISIS and everything. Obama kind of quietly sent troops back. Trump is kind of doing the same thing in many ways, you know, 
<laughs> just a lot sloppier and with a lot more thoughtlessness. So in the macro, one could see where this is not an objectionable position to have. But in the actual implementation of it, it just seems reckless and thoughtless and um, putting a lot of Kurds who, you know, courageously fought alongside us to defeat ISIS, as we say, in a very vulnerable position, let alone just the bowing down to Erdogan and Turkey and everything. It's, it's just ridiculous. But as I said, it makes my head explode. Um, Democratic debate was this week. I don't know if you guys are watching these things, if you're not interested. I think they get more interesting when there's fewer people. We really need some people to drop out. You know what we got to do? We got to start, like, coming up with fake debates and inviting them to the fake debates and then have the real debate somewhere else in a different hall or something like that. See who we don't want to be in it or whatever. But we just, we're just we just going to have to tell some people, look, you really need to drop out. Just please stop it. Julian Castro, you just don't have a chance. Cory Booker. God bless you. If people are getting shot in your neighborhood, go to your neighborhood and clean that shit up, man. You're not going to be president at this point. Beto, you're not taking anybody's guns. <laughs> you know, it's not going to happen. Go home. Thank you very much for your service. Just stop it. Some of these people, we got to thin out the herd at this point. Kamala Harris, why are you trying to get Elizabeth Warren to agree with you? Twitter needs to ban Trump was one of the most ridiculous things I've ever seen in a debate. I don't know if you saw, but Kamala Harris was trying to corner Elizabeth Warren. Why won't you agree with me that we need to ban Trump from Twitter? And Elizabeth Warren was like, bitch, we need to get that motherfucker out of the White House. What are you talking about Twitter? I want to get him out of the White House. That's pretty much how she answered her. She didn't say bitch. I know she didn't. But that was pretty much how she answered him. Kamala Harris, it's probably time to go. We need to narrow this down and get serious about beating Trump and just acknowledge that some people really don't have a chance. Those are kind of some of the people I've pointed out. I think there's still some long shots, maybe. Amy Klobuchar, I thought, did a pretty good job, but I don't think she's going to surge. You know, I just don't think she has. I don't know what it is. It may be political. She doesn't seem like a gifted politician, the type that when you see them speak and they're out on the trail, you just want to follow them, you know. I think she's a competent politician, you know, or maybe a competent leader. I think she'd make a good president, by the way. But I don't know if she has that spark that you need to get people to just want to get in the tent to even listen to you, you know. Bernie Sanders, I'm so happy that he's doing well. You know, he had the heart attack and everything. And I got to tell you, Bernie looked better in this debate than he did in the other. He looked like he was a little tanned. I think he combed his hair this time. And Bernie was, I wasn't mad at Bernie. He looked pretty good. I was very impressed. Bernie's putting up a good fight. You can't really be mad at Bernie Sanders, you know. And as you know, I'm a, personally, I'm a big fan of Bernie Biden, I just don't know what's going on with Biden. He just seems more and more lost. You know, he had this thing. It was kind of handed to him. Maybe that was the problem. But it seems like he's going to fumble this completely. And I say fumble it because he does have a lot of built-in support, particularly in the African-American community. People, because, you know, he was Obama's boy. They're just ready to vote for him. I think he's going to let that go. And Elizabeth Warren is just kicking everybody's butt right now. She's the most organized she leads with messages of things she wants to do. She's just not anti-Trump, even though, yes, it is important to talk about why he shouldn't come back. But I think it's more important to say, what is my vision for America? And I think she puts that out better than anybody. Whether or not she'll be a good candidate remains to be seen. I don't know what that answer is. And the, here's the thing. In another time, I would have thought, mm, I don't know, Elizabeth Warren, 
She's pretty far left in terms of being a general candidate. You know, she'd have to come back to the middle a little bit when you're talking about getting the votes in the middle. In terms of getting the progressive votes, she's got them, right? But when you're talking about all of America, I don't know if people necessarily agree with her in doing some of the, I'll call extreme type of things, you know, Medicare for all, some of those. You know, a lot of people are happy with their health care. A lot of people aren't, and some people don't. But it doesn't mean you should get rid of it all is what a lot of people think, you know. And why are we throwing Obamacare over the rails? How long has it been around? Like five years and it's ready to go? Five years after FDR put in Social Security, were people trying to get rid of Social Security and come up with something else? I don't think so. Five years after Medicare came around in the 60s, people weren't trying to get rid of Medicare. This is where I think the messaging is bad. I feel like the Democrats are shitting all over Obamacare like it's a bad idea. But it was the Democrats' idea. It's only been five years and we're saying it's bad? This is not good messaging in my mind, the Medicare for all. Even if people think it's a good idea, you have to remember the other thing that you're saying is we just had a big health care fight with President Obama. He suffered politically for it and everything. Democrats fought hard for Obamacare. They gave passionate reasons why it would work. They defended it even when it seemed like it was in shaky legs. And right when it has a chance to, and by the way, the Republicans have always done everything they could to weaken Obamacare, and cynically so. It's disgusting some of the things they did because you're fucking with people's health care, you know, and they're playing political games, getting rid of the mandate, all that kind of stuff, right? But the Democrats are now doing what the Republicans, by the way, are very happy that they're doing for them, acknowledging that Obamacare is not needed or is not working or whatever, just by completely ignoring it. You got to give, like, Biden credit for saying, why the fuck are we going away from Obamacare? Let's just make that better, you guys. So I do not think that's a winning strategy. Even if people think that this Medicare for all or whatever it is is a good idea, you have to remember the other thing that you're saying. You know, you're agreeing with the Republicans about Obamacare. You're going to have to acknowledge that. And I think that's a losing statement, personally. All right. That's what I think. We're going to see what's going to happen. It looks like, you know, I was saying Warren and Biden is what it looks like. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. There's still room for somebody to surge. You know, it may not happen till Iowa or whatever. But um, we need to get rid of some of those people. All right. Last thing I want to talk about real quick. Lakers season starts next week. I say Lakers season, not even basketball season. Yes, I'm a Lakers fan. <laughs> That's how much I love my Lakers. But you guys heard about this thing. This whole, when the Lakers were in China and Daryl Morey, who's the GM of the Houston Rockets, tweeted something in support of Hong Kong and China's got all their panties in a bunch and acted like, oh, there's no gambling in this establishment, you know, and that they were all offended and everything. And, uh, you know, not wanting to play ball with the NBA because of this. And then LeBron, for whatever reason, decided to um, wade into this because there were a lot of attacks about some of the people like Steve Kerr, Greg Popovich, who always have things to say about things that are going on in America. And people say, why aren't you speaking up on this China thing? LeBron speaks up, and it it felt like in his statements, he was kind of unnecessarily, let's say, being Switzerland <laughs> in a way that was odd. Like almost giving China a pass for being China. And saying that Daryl Morey was uninformed. and It was just a bad look. It was not a good statement. And I think LeBron's intentions were in the right place and all that stuff. But here's what I want to say. My whole take on this, looking at it now, people need to stop criticizing LeBron for this thing and get past this because all of our hands are dirty in this whole China thing. 
all of America has been dealing with China since I was a little kid and seeing things called Made in China. And their government was worse then than it certainly is now. So we have always been in a transactional relationship with China. But to get mad at a basketball player for not wanting to lose his bit particular business is a bit disingenuous because we're all doing that. And to be honest with you guys, and this is this is such an odd thing to say in this thing, because you know how much I can't stand Trump. Trump's really been one of the voices who's attacked China for their horrible trade policies. You know, he's unabashedly attacked them and hasn't cared about what they think when you think about it, right? Why do we have these kit gloves when talking about them? Doesn't make sense to me, but once again, I understand. I can't blame anybody completely for that, but I do think LeBron made a horrible statement and he probably should have just stayed out of it. That's pretty much my take on that. But all of our hands are dirty when it comes to China, so we shouldn't be hypocritical and act like it's not. Everybody in this country buys goods made in China from iPhones to clothes to everything and are happy to do it. And we don't say, I'm not going to buy that because of the way the government treats their people. Nope, we don't. Sorry. That's just what we do. All right. Susan Rice coming up right after this. <laughs> Sorry, there's no commercial. She's coming right up. <laughs> Guys, this is a this is a treat. You know, you don't get a chance to speak to people like this all the time who've had such a historical, I think, um, imprint. On our country, really, from so many different aspects, culturally, you know, legacy, you know, so many different things to work with the first black president of the United States. It's Susan Rice. Susan, thank you for being on the show. Thanks so much, Larry. I'm really glad to be here. First African-American woman as UN ambassador to the United Nations, I believe. Yeah. And um, second African-American woman as national security Advisor. The first one had a similar last name. <laughs> yes. That's kind of, I was thinking about How that. How weird is that? Do you that? know Condoleezza I do. Rice? I do. Well, so I first met her uh-huh. when I was an undergraduate at Stanford. Right. And she was uh, an associate professor. Then. Well, right. she wasn't quite yet She wasn't provost, at provost level. But she yeah. became provost. Right. And she was, when I was there, uh, a fast rising political science professor with, uh-huh. a, you know, clearly going places. Yeah. And then she, um, after I graduated, we're about 10 years apart in mm-hmm. age, she being older, just in case anybody's confused. Right. <laughs> I don't <laughs> think anyone is. Yes. So then she went to the White there House. Is the, there's the Venn diagram where we both belong, but I, I get the age. I love how people put, put those types of things out immediately. No, no, listen, people, I'm not that old. <laughs> it's funny. Well, because people sometimes confuse us. Uh, really? We, yeah. It's a bit that's people not paying attention. That's people who, yeah, it's it's a lot. It's people who don't, yeah. you know, don't see us looking different. Wow. You know what I mean? Oh, that's so, a huge. Uh, and it happens here in the U.S. Really? Quite a bit. But it also, and my mother used to get so mad if people came up to her and uh-huh. said, are you Condoleezza Rice's mother? And she's like, no. Wow. But, <laughs> but I mean, in, but they go that next step. They but, they extrapolate even more, yeah. not just mixing you two up, exactly. but in your backstory. Exactly. Right? <laughs> but um, but no, I've known her since I was an undergraduate. Oh, and okay. she's always been quite uh, kind to me. Sure. And when she was in the White House after I was finishing my graduate work, uh, she was working mm-hmm. for President Bush. She was in the first Bush White House. Yeah, yeah. first Bush. Mm-hmm. And right. she invited me to lunch in the White House mess mm-hmm. and always sort of gave me advice and support. And now as we're both, you know— well launched in our careers. We, yeah. we cross paths quite often. It's real interesting. I mean, you 
you know, in your particular story, of course, you talk about your son becoming a conservative, which you talk about later, but these two black women at this particular place in history having these, you know, serving two different ways that um, we're kind of divided right now. Yeah. Which is she's, she's quite conservative, too. Yeah. Actually, more than I think people realize. Um, but we talk about this stuff and yeah. uh, agree and disagree on different things. But right. one funny story about when we got confused, my first visit to China as national security advisor, uh-huh. um, I was making a solo visit on behalf of the president, preparing for him to have a big summit with President Xi Jinping. And I met with Xi and his uh, at the Great Hall of the People and did all these meetings, mm-hmm. et cetera. That night on Chinese state television, they were reporting on my visit. And they say, you know, uh, President Obama's national security advisor, Susan Rice, is here. And they put up Condoleezza nice. Rice's photograph. Very nice. <laughs> it's the whole— uh, <laughs> It's like, all right. Oh, man. It's the whole John Lewis, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Elijah Cummings uh, right. thing that's exactly. going on right now. <laughs> Um, anyway, I saw Elijah Cummings at Seven Eleven this morning. How could he be dead? That was John Lewis. <laughs> That's so wrong. Oh my God. Oh, why? <laughs> why is this still going? <laughs> it's so amazing. Um, Tough Love is your book. My serve the things worth fighting for. It's such an engaging read, and I use the word. I was trying to find the right word to describe it, and I think engaging to me kind of does it because you pull us in in different ways. I mean, you start off talking about a very personal story about your kids and everything and the effect that, you know, being in that harsh spotlight, um, well, in that case, I think it was Benghazi right. or whatever, but your job in particular brings that, even if it wasn't that, right. I'm sure, you know. But I love the way you weave in your history and personal stuff, and you even use different fonts for <laughs> going into different ways, too. It's a real interesting book, but I love fly-on-the-wall type of stuff, you know, even hearing how you disagree with the president on certain things and all that. Why, why was it important for you to tell your own story? Did you feel like you had to clear up a record, or did you just want— you just always felt you wanted to tell this story, or what was it? Well, it's not that I felt that I had to clear up a record— mm-hmm. Um, as much as I felt that as a senior official, particularly after Benghazi in 2012, where I became sort of this recyclable boogeyman uh, mm-hmm. and right-wing media. The chew toy? Is that what <laughs> <laughs> Somebody on MSNBC called me the right. right-wing's favorite chew toy, which I thought was funny. Yeah. So, you know, on the left, you know, I've been lionized and, and mm-hmm. treated as, you know, some great conquering hero on the right, mm-hmm. you know, treated as some villain and, and horrific liar. And for the duration of my time in government, as I served as national security mm-hmm. advisor, I was speaking on behalf of the United States and right. I was representing the president. I never could put in my own words who I am and w- w- why I really you know, am who I am. Mm-hmm. And had it not been for that reality that I felt I'd been characterized and mischaracterized and everybody speaking for me except for me, mm-hmm. I might have waited 10 or 15 years until I was a bit older to to want to write my memoirs. I would have done it eventually. Mm-hmm. But I felt a sense of urgency because I felt that I had had to endure something that my very wise father has always taught me not to endure, which mm-hmm. is to let other people define you for you. Yeah, uh, I call it controlling the narrative. Well, that's yeah. another way to look mm-hmm. at it. But it's not so much that I was trying to convince people of one thing or the other. I just wanted to tell my own story as honestly as I could. Mm-hmm. People can decide. They're gonna people are gonna still <laughs> hate me, and people are gonna still like me. Yeah, I don't really care that much. I just wanted it to be my story and my words. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to be able to share 
some of the lessons I've learned from my family, from mm-hmm. my upbringing, from my service. You know, I've been, <laughs> I've seen a lot now. Mm-hmm. And uh, I really think that from my experience, I have some things to share with anybody who wants to compete and thrive mm-hmm. in, in unforgiving environments. And you say you don't care, but I don't quite believe you. Okay, well, we can explore that. We can explore that. Well, because there's so much passion in here, and you absolutely do care. You know, you just, I think you don't show that you care. This is just my opinion on it. Care about what? Let's be specific. Well, I think the way you are characterized in a certain light, uh, I think you do care about that because you take a lot of pride in what you do, you know. And I think you did feel like it was an injustice. You're not saying your opinion on um, Benghazi in that situation, you're delivering a message for the state, right? I mean, it's not right. you saying in the moment. Yes, here's what I feel. Right, you're, and I couldn't do that. Would be correct. An, inappropriate. That's what I mean. But then it's being characterized that you know whether it was you're incompetent or you're you know you know you're covering up or that type of thing. Like, of course you care that people would take personal um, stabs at you. You know, I mean, when you open up talking about your family and the effect that it had, that's what I mean. Yeah. Well, let, let, let me let me elaborate. But it's, but it's also you aren't going to this isn't going to bother me. <laughs> well, I'm brushing my shoulder. right Well, now. there's <laughs> both of those things. right? <laughs> yes. So absolutely. Mm-hmm. If after all that I've worked to become right. and all that I've tried to do to serve on, to the best of my ability with the mm-hmm. best of intentions, I do take offense at people who uh, right malign my integrity and my truthfulness yes. that particularly when they turn an, personal well it's not just right. the, it's, it's the integrity and the truthfulness mm-hmm. in particular which is why i tried to write such an honest book yeah i wanted to be as forthright about who i am as a way of you know saying i'm prepared to to tell yeah. hard truths so that's certainly an uh, mm-hmm. a reaction and a, a set of emotions that i'll own and obviously also i spend time in there talking about the effect that some of this had on my daughter right. uh, and on my mom. And mm-hmm. I I want people to understand that, you know, when we attack people in the hothouse of uh, political Washington, mm-hmm. that the politics of personal destruction, whether they're directed at a Democrat or a Republican, don't come for free. They affect not only the target of the attacks, but the people who love that person. Yeah. And the collateral damage. Yeah. And mm-hmm. these are people who children or, you know, elderly people or whomever who didn't sign up for this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I understand that's the way it is, and I signed I signed up for a life that had implications for the people that I love. Mm-hmm. But I don't think we can be uh, callous about how those uh, mm-hmm. uh, ramifications unfold. Why was it so important for you? This may sound silly, but why was it so important for you to include so much of your personal backgrounds, but particularly about your parents, which I find all that's a very interesting. It's kind of a history lesson. I think, you know what it is? Let me put it this way. I think a lot of black life in America, particularly in the 20th century, is a mystery to, to most people in America. And especially um, exceptional black life, I'll say. And by exceptional, people that have achieved things kind of in the dark. You know, your parents are kind of an example of that. I have many people that are examples where they've done things. Because people always thought we're all the children of sharecroppers who lived in the ghetto. And only in the 80s did people start (laughs) making things happen. Right? I mean, that's what it seems like. That's kind of the depiction in the media. People have that as something. We we all cut off There was a Thurgood Marshall that existed in this country, you guys, a long time ago. Oh, my God. I mean, I'm speaking of it from a certain point of view, but for you personally, why was it important to include so much about your family and your upbringing, even about your parents' divorce and things like that? Because I don't think I could be honest about mm-hmm. who I am and where I came from mm-hmm. and what makes me the the policymaker that people saw in public without giving uh, 
real treatment to my family background. Mm -hmm. That was so important in shaping me. Uh, and, you know, to just give a little context, on my father's side of the family, uh, he was the uh, descendant of slaves in South Carolina, born right. in 1920 and lived in the harshest form of Jim mm. Crow. But his grandfather, my great-grandfather, who was a slave and fought then in the Union Army in wow. South Carolina, managed to get a college education yeah. and managed to found a school in the late 1880s in New Jersey called the Bordentown School, that for 70 years educated generations of African-Americans, both mm -hmm. in vocational skills and in college prep skills. So here's a slave who founded an educational institution that had a, a legacy that was hugely impactful. And then right. my, each generation subsequently from my great-grandfather, Walter the Slave, had college educations. Mm -hmm. And that that's extraordinary, as you know, right. uh, in our history. On my mother's side, they were immigrants from Jamaica who came to Portland, Maine, of all places, wow, in 1912. Maine. It doesn't get more different. <laughs> Jamaica to Maine. Jamaica to Maine. Wow. And they had, they, mm -hmm. my grandfather was a janitor. My grandmother was mm -hmm. a maid. They had nothing, but they were determined to educate their kids and right. sent all five kids to college. And, you know, two doctors, one university president, one optometrist, and my mother, who was the youngest, who mm -hmm. became a corporate executive, sat on 11 corporate boards, but more importantly, spent her the bulk of her career, trying to increase access to higher education yeah. for low-income Americans. And when she died, she was eulogized and you know, her obituaries called her the mother of the Pell Grant program because mm -hmm. she was so instrumental in helping to establish and sustain that program, which has enabled 80 million Americans to go to college. So I have these, you know, roots on both sides yeah. that – you know, where I was taught, even though they came from very different backgrounds, you, you got to get an education. You got to excel. You have an obligation to give back because, you know, each succeeding generation has had more benefits than the previous one. You got to serve and be about something larger mm -hmm. than yourself. It didn't mean you have to go into government or the military. You could, you know, there are all different kinds of ways to serve from the private sector to the nonprofit world. But the point that my parents ground into me and my brother is, you know, we've been fortunate relative to uh, other people like us, um, we had to use that good fortune to positive benefit for others, not for just for ourselves. And so describing all of that was a sort of essential to mm -hmm. explaining who I am. And then talking about in very uh, raw and personal terms, my upbringing, my parents' divorce, yeah. how that affected me, that was probably the most searing and formative experience yeah. I have. And also, you know, it taught me resilience. It taught me, unfortunately, mediation skills because as a seven-year-old kid, That's I'd have to doing. run into the fire of their sure. fighting and try to break it up yeah. and try to help, you know, say literally get into the substance of what they were fighting about and try to diffuse it, which I had no idea many years later. <laughs> That's what you'd be doing. <laughs> Whether it was with the Russians and, you know, or yeah. the North Koreans, I'd be negotiating. Wow. When you think that's amazing. Yeah, the ability to compartmentalize and learning, you know, having to learn to compartmentalize from that standpoint. And you kind of have to do that in your job and all the jobs that you've had. There's a certain compartmentalization, I think, that would have to go. On. I call it you have to be kind of a passionate sociopath <laughs> in some ways. That's, thank you very much for that. <laughs> right. I mean, you kind of do. You know, that's kind of what surgeons are. Well, surgeons aren't even passionate. They're just complete sociopaths. You know, it's like we're just cutting this body up. This is coming out. Boom. Next. You know. <laughs> well, you know, it's really interesting. And I've tried to tried to do some introspection about mm -hmm. this as I was writing. Right. 
And I still don't fully understand, you know, what is it about me that enabled me to to do the work, for example, of National Security Advisor, mm-hmm. where you're dealing with threats and, you know, some of the scariest stuff that one can imagine that we I don't even talk about. Can't even imagine it. You and you're, you're, you know, you're trying to work on those issues and be effective. And at the same time, you're trying to come home and be there for your kids and, mm-hmm. you know, make sure that they know that you're present. Um, and you're also trying to sleep at night. And yeah. and for the most part, I could do all of that. Uh, and for me, the as I write in the book, as stressful as the substance of my job was, the thing that kept me up at night more than anything else, more than the policy issues, as much as I worried about those, was was my parents' health as they mm-hmm. were deteriorating and I was trying to be responsible at the same time for making sure that they had the care and support they needed. So, you know, all those things are swirling around at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I did have some, sometimes I think even bizarre ability to say, okay, I've got this work piece. It's really important. It's sometimes scary. I'm going to do my best about that, but I'm not going to let it to the extent possible uh, infect or infuse my ability to so be tough. a human being. Because there's got to be a cost just in being privy to certain information that you can't share I mean, anytime you have to have secrets in your life, there's a cost, you know, where you can't share things, I always feel. Um, let's talk about your years in the Clinton administration. Like, how did that—you're so young. I mean, I think you're 28 or something 28 like that. 28 when I started the That's White House. That's amazing. I mean, what what is, what is that like when you first go there? What is that experience like as a young person in, <laughs> you know, being that close to the, the most powerful person in the world? Well, it it was, first of all— a bit daunting to be 28 mm-hmm. uh, and one of virtually no African-Americans or and very few women who were at that stage. We're talking now the early 1990s mm-hmm. working in, you know, at the National Security Council or, or in uh, senior ranks of national security. Although Rice had already done it for yes. first Bush? No. Okay. Well, no. She had been on the National Security Council staff, um, staff under right. Bush 1 and then she came back under Bush two, got it. After Clinton, as National Security and what Advisor, was, what was Powell's position under the first Bush? Powell had various positions, including Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, but chairman he served as he right. did serve as National Security Advisor. That's for a what period. it was. Okay, got it. <clears throat> under Bush one, got it. Mm-hmm. So all these people. Oh, I know which back, one. Yeah, they all <laughs> they, they span administrations. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it was it was somewhat daunting. But the the good part was that they recognized in hiring me. Uh, without prior government experience, mm-hmm. that it would be beneficial for me to have the the mentorship, the tutelage of some very experienced people. So my first boss in government, my direct boss, was Richard Clark, uh, mm-hmm. who some people know as, you know, famous counterterrorism and sure. now cybersecurity czar. What was your position? I was the director for international organizations and peacekeeping. Basically, I, had, I was okay. responsible for the UN and yeah. everything related to the UN. And mm-hmm. he ran an office— uh, called Global Issues and Multilateral Affairs, where the people at my level who reported to him did everything from counter-narcotics to counter-terrorism to humanitarian assistance, human rights. All of these sorts of things were clustered together in this mm-hmm. office. And Clark ran this office, and he had been serving in government for you know 25 years or more, great knowledge and experience. And he took me under his wing with one of his uh, close advisors and trained me. And, you know, taught me how to write good memos to the president, how to run an interagency process, you know, how to find money in the budget so that you can (laughs) get done what you need to get done. And so for about six months, I was almost an understudy 
in that office. And then when I had gotten my sea legs, I was able to act as as independently as any other director at my level. Mm -hmm. And then two years later, I was promoted to run the Africa office, and I was then Richard Clark's counterpart. We need somebody to run the Africa office. What have we got in here? (laughs) Who's that girl? (laughs) No, the funny part was— that sister over there? The funny part was the first time I—when they interviewed me at Mm -hmm. the White House— at 28, okay, because mm-hmm. when I ran the Africa office, that was two years later. I was 30. When I first came at 28, um, they had originally offered me a job as being a special assistant to the national security advisor. So mm-hmm. I'd be in the heart of the, the front the office. Of yeah. That sounded great. I said yes. And then they called back a couple weeks later and said, sorry, we got to rescind that offer because they were going to have two special assistants. They realized they had the budget only for one. And they said, we're going to give it to this other guy who worked with us on the campaign. But would you like to be a director for African affairs? And I said, no, thank you. And they thought I had lost my mind. Why would you turn down a job uh, when it's available to you at the White House and the National Security Council Mm -hmm. staff? And I did that. Because I was concerned if my first job in government as an African-American woman, even though I had substantive background in Africa and great passion about it, was in African affairs, I'd be pigeonholed Mm -hmm. and I would be limited in where I could grow and develop because I thought people's prejudices would box me in. And in fact, if you look at that in that era at the how African-American foreign service officers, for example, were deployed, a disproportionate share of them were in the Africa region. And so I said, no, thank you. And I thought, okay, well, I've, that's the end of that. I'm not coming to the White House. Did you say it like this? Why it got to be Africa? Because <laughs> <laughs> no thank you sounds like that's how you're remembering it. No, I, but I was— I imagine a young Susan Rice with a big afro <laughs> and the hoop earrings— and I was like, why it got to be African? Why it got to be African? <laughs> that was the implication. I don't think I said it quite that way. But that would have been awesome. <laughs> <laughs> the answer for why it got to be I mean, Lisa, right. I'd, written my, be I'd written my PhD dissertation on Zimbabwe. And so it wasn't like completely oh, okay. out, right. of, it wasn't sure. out of the realm right. of the reasonable. Sure, so sure. I said no, and I thought, okay, well, that's the end of that. And then they called back a couple weeks later and said, okay, how about the United Nations and peacekeeping? And I said, great. Because In that's, Africa? No, no. Right. Okay. Globally. Got it. And that's and I wanted to do it because it was global. I could demonstrate mm-hmm. a competence across the board. A lot of the UN stuff does relate to Africa, about 60% of it, but the mm-hmm. world as well. So I said yes. Then two years later, when they asked me to run the Africa office, I said yes, because I felt like I had already demonstrated that I could do multiple things and that I wanted to, I love Africa. I wanted to work on it, but I mm-hmm. just, I felt at that stage, I'd proved myself sufficiently that you know, was, I had a chance of I had a chance point. of you mm-hmm. know using that experience, uh, but not being confined to it. Mm-hmm. And so I spent the next six years of the Clinton administration at the White House, and then later at the State Department, working on Africa. So you were there during the whole Rwanda. Um, that was when I was working on the UN the oh, okay. first two years. Right. But yes, I was there for that. Mm-hmm. Well, and it was awful. I was going to say, what are your recollections of that? Did did it feel like it seems like from the outside that the United States either was ignoring it or, you know, was acting like hopefully it would stop or that type of thing. It was very frustrating. Well, I write about it mm-hmm. extensively in the book Tough Love because it was such a searing early formative experience. Yeah. And the thing that I try to explain to people is that the first big trauma of the Clinton administration in foreign policy was Somalia. 
as people remember, mm-hmm. Black Hawk Down. Black Hawk Down, yeah. When we lost 18 American service That's members terrible, in the yeah. streets of Mogadishu. And when that happened, Congress ordered the United States uh, to withdraw our forces from Somalia within six months. It's a little more complicated than that, but that's the bottom line. So six months go by. That's March 31, 1994. We're in the last U.S. uh, military personnel withdraw from Somalia. Uh Seven days later, on April 7th, is when the Rwandan genocide began with the shootdown of the plane carrying the president of Rwanda and Burundi. Uh And from there, it was just a spiral of killing. The United States government's first response uh, in Rwanda was to evacuate its personnel, as it is anywhere in a crisis situation. Mm -hmm. And so that's what happened. And when we safely and after a harrowing evacuation got the Americans out, we also lost our eyes and ears. So we were behind the curve for a period in understanding just how bad it was. But it was horrific. And even as that came fully to light within the the subsequent weeks, the extraordinary thing – Larry, that I that I try to get people to understand is the United States never decided not to intervene mm-hmm. or not to get more deeply involved in Rwanda. They never made a decision one way or the other. They never mm. there was never a meeting among senior policymakers to consider the question. Yeah. And that's the big policy uh, failure. I think there's a, you can have a robust debate right. about whether or not we could have or should have intervened and what that would have looked like. And, you know, having then visited Rwanda six months after the genocide and seen, you know, corpses still just thick on the ground. Yeah, it's terrible. It's hard not to think, well, we we could have, should have done something. Why do you think it was ignored? Why do you because think it was Because of Somalia. Mm-hmm. I think people were, had, were so traumatized mm-hmm. by Somalia and we had just safely evacuated our people from Somalia. It's the notion that we should go back into an even more unknown and remote part of Africa in the midst of killing uh, did not really occur to senior policymakers. It wasn't, you know, debated on the floors of Congress. You know, nobody, I can't, I defy you to find an editorial page that advocated for that. It was as if the whole American consciousness was to sort of tune it out. Uh Uh, And obviously with extraordinary human consequences. The UN didn't intervene, and it's very complicated. I go into this. They they had their limitations, and we, as America, you know, were imposing our concerns and constraints on the United Nations. The neighboring countries didn't intervene, right? Um, and the you know, the cost in human terms of eight hundred thousand to a million lives is mm-hmm. just you know, unfathomable. Yeah, it's unconscionable. Um, it's so interesting to me how because of the context of times, things get handled differently than they would even a couple of years later, you know, that the world global situations change so fast, you know, and the amount of information you have to process has got to be overwhelming. I would think too. Do what is your recollection? How do you have a judgment on the Clinton presidency those years at all? Like when you look back now, what do you think about that presidency? I'm not saying like him as a president, but I mean, those, those years. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, I think broadly speaking, they were successful years. Mm-hmm. You know, the economy grew, you know, at an enormous pace. There was, uh, you know, there were opportunities for people who had little to get more. It was a growth mm-hmm. period, even uh, for more disadvantaged groups like us in this country. Right. So I think that you, know, you got to give that context and credit. I think internationally, we were wrestling with, you know, what is America's role in the world in the wake of the Cold War? Mm -hmm. We were, for a period of time, you know, uh, 
unrivaled uh, on internationally. You know, Russia was in trouble. Was China hadn't period, right? come up yet mm-hmm. uh, in the same way. And we were wrestling with, you know, to what extent then with that global preeminence do we, you know, become the world's policemen? Right. And that was really kind of the issue. And we had Bosnia and we had, you know, Kosovo and mm-hmm. uh, all these different challenges after um, Somalia and Rwanda. And my focus in that context was on Africa, and we tried very hard to elevate Africa on the U.S. national security agenda and to put time and attention and resources to it, particularly on the economic and trade front, giving uh, – we had passed landmark legislation that opened the U.S. market to goods from Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did a whole bunch of things in the African context to strengthen their security capacity, their ability to – deal with conflicts like the ones in, in Somalia and Rwanda without having to depend on the outside world or the United States to come to their rescue. So building their own capacity. We um, we invested in girls' education. We invested in a whole bunch of things that I think were important um, contributions to the U.S.-Africa partnership. But uh, I think, you know, globally it's it, – we had mixed experience. You know, I think the first term we, we made some significant mistakes and I talk about two of them in mm-hmm. Somalia and Rwanda. Right. I think we learned from those. And I think by the president's second term, um, particularly as he you know led the international community, despite opposition in Kosovo to um, to try to protect people at risk. Uh, we had learned and, and learned some of the right lessons and began to apply them effectively. Yeah, it was hard for people to get a good sense during that time because of the whole Monica Lewinsky thing and the whole impeachment thing. And, you know, he was accused. Talk about compartmentalizing. Yes, we to, exactly. <laughs> we well, had to tune that out yeah, and keep doing I our mean, jobs. It must have been, I mean, accusing of wagging the dog, I remember, and all that kind of stuff, you know. Um, yeah, it, it's amazing when I think of that presidency and how it ended, you know, kind of Clinton's kind of on top, which is. So interesting. I mean, did did you get to know them personally at all during that time, um, President First Lady? Yes, not as obviously not nearly as closely mm-hmm. as I um, knew no President Obama, and I didn't. I was at a very different level of, sure. of hierarchy. Right. But by virtue of working in the White House for uh, about four and a half years, and you know, working closely with the president on anything to do with African affairs, whether a foreign visitor or a trip or a leader, a foreign leader call. I did get to know him and mm-hmm. I got to know uh, the first lady, Hillary Clinton, less well in that context, but, mm-hmm. you know, not well enough. Um, and uh, and then obviously when I worked with Hillary, when she was secretary of state and I was you yeah. ambassador, was much closer. Sure. So that's all over. Do you think you're out of out of government at that <laughs> it's point? All over. Do you Bye. say, I'll go back to academia or this After the Clinton thing? administration? Sure. No, at that point, I realized that I, I did want to continue in the field of foreign mm-hmm. policy and national security. And that to do that, uh, I had to um, broaden my experience and my perceived cap- capability beyond Africa. Having worked six years mm-hmm. in Africa, I'd reached the highest level job in the U.S. government mm-hmm. working on Africa. There was really no more for me to do. The black ceiling. <laughs> it wasn't the black ceiling. It was the it was <laughs> it was the the ceiling of any regional expert. So sure. the, the highest All level right, is. Say what you want. I'm yeah. not, no, look, yeah. please. It's important to understand. Okay. You make it regional. <laughs> All right. If you're the assistant secretary of state for East Asia and the Pacific, mm-hmm. or if you're the assistant secretary of state for Europe, 
Mm-hmm. You've reached the highest level that you can right. working on that region. The next level up, you're working on a global issue. You're the mm-hmm. undersecretary for political affairs or whatever. So that was the problem. And a lot of people, because they were older than me, who reached that level of assistant secretary, leave government and go out into academia or the private sector, and they work on that region from outside, and sometimes they make money, they do whatever. That wasn't my interest. I was 36 when I left the Clinton administration. I had one child. I wanted to have another. That was my first priority. (laughs) Uh, And I wanted to be present for the first child as well as the second. of course. Um, But I also knew that in an ideal world, if I had the opportunity, I'd like to come back and continue to Mm -hmm. serve. And so I spent my time during the Bush years, uh, Bush II, building my family but also building my knowledge and expertise in regions beyond Africa. Kind of prepping yourself for what Giving myself done. the background and, mm-hmm. and some of the credentials. And then I also worked on the 2004 John Kerry campaign. That's right, yeah. And then, of course, uh, President Obama's campaign from 2007. Okay, so that's one of my favorite moments in the book, by the way, because I can so relate to your attraction to the Obama moment. You know, it's generational. It's this new thing coming in. I love how... For you, it kind of expressed some of the things. Even your dad had talked to you about where he wasn't leading with race, mm-hmm. right? You know, he's coming from a different standpoint. He's coming from, yeah, because that speech that he made at the convention, I remember watching that as well, you know. Um, and the way that he spoke to America, we hadn't quite heard that from, especially a black politician right. or any politician like that, you know. Obama almost seems like a different figure when I look at that now, <laughs> you know, from what he ended up uh, becoming. But is that... What drew you in the most in that moment? Because, and I want to get to the Sandy Berger phone call, too, which I think is fantastic, because the timing of that could have changed your whole career. Well, the you know? outcome of the of the uh, election could have changed my whole career. I might have been a, right. I might have been in the private sector a lot quicker. <laughs> or if Sandy Berger had called you before Obama. No. You I, wouldn't have said yes? No, I would not have wow, said yes. Oh, really? No. Okay, so let me give context. So uh, 2004, you're just— you had already helped John Kerry at this point, right? Okay, this is 2007 when Obama called you, right? Yes, and I had already begun to build a relationship. You had with given him. him some advice when you were working right. for Right, and when Kerry, he came right? to the Senate, right, I got to know him even better. Oh, okay. So when he came to you and asked if you would be in his campaign, you were like, "I'm all in." Yes, and it was, it, as I describe in the book, um, it wasn't a hard decision, right? Because to me, Obama was something different and special. Mm-hmm. He was an African American leader of my generation who shared my vision for what this country could be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and what was that vision? A, an America that was inclusive and that mm-hmm. was aiming to lift everybody up and that wasn't going to be internally divided, you know, on the basis of, you know, who you are, or where you came from, which is not to say we were going to eliminate racism by any stretch, but that here we had a leader who embodied various different elements of American society right. uh, and who really wanted, in my judgment, uh, for us to be better as a whole than we could be if we were divided. Yeah. I, that was his vision, and I believed it, and I was moved by it. And it wasn't that I made a decision against the Clintons. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, I was proud to serve under President Clinton. And I respect him very much and I respect Hillary very much. But this was kind of like, you know, we we know what that's going to be like. And that was fine and good. But here's something really new and special. And right. I want to be part of that. You were. <laughs> <laughs> Even if it cost me my ago. career. Do I go to the cookout? <laughs> 
or the picnic. <laughs> cookout, right? Yeah, you got to choose. Cook. You got to choose cookout. It's not even close. And the people at the picnic go, why what? doesn't she want to come to the picnic? We don't understand, you know? Oh, my God. We have all these raisins and our potatoes out. A lot of inside jokes there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's funny that uh, when I was reading— uh, Sandy Berger's comments, they really sound kind of condescending now in retrospect. Well, I hope you know that you're making the biggest mistake of your life. Well, we you know, have to explain this. So yeah. I sign up with Obama. Right. And then a few weeks later, Sandy Berger, who is my friend and yes. my former boss, a former national him. security boss, right. uh, he calls on behalf of Secretary um, then Senator Clinton right. and says, would you essentially play the same role for her that you already agreed to play for Obama? Would you run her campaign? Uh, on foreign policy. He didn't know at that point that I'd had made mm-hmm. that commitment to Obama. And I explained to him, you know, I, I'm, first of all, I'm surprised I wasn't expecting this call. Thank you so much. Um, you know, I have great respect for Secretary Clinton, but I've already signed up with Barack Obama. He's like, oh, yeah, he's like, what? He's like, what? <laughs> Say what? <laughs> right. And I explained, you know, it, it wasn't just that Berger called second. I would have Signed mm. up for Obama if he called me, you know, whenever. I that was the team I wanted to be on, and so I explained this to Sandy, and I <laughs> he said, called first, you're like, "Let me get back to you." <laughs> He's like, "You must be out of your mind. You know he can't win. Wow, and you know you're just blowing up your career. Wow, because what he was really saying was, you know, if when she wins." She's not going to forget this. Right. Right? That was the and implicit That was the impl- implication. Right. And it wasn't even a threat as much as it was, you know, like advice from somebody who thinks I've lost my mind. Right. <laughs> so, uh, and I said, look, you know, Sandy, I get that. I totally get it. But I'm doing this not because I'm looking for a job. I'm doing this because this is what I believe is so important and so right. Yeah, it's funny. You said the Clintons, they never saw Obama coming. This really kind of took them by surprise. Right? I, I mean, remember when— uh, President Clinton said, "This is all a fairy tale." Right, right, <laughs> said right. That. That's when black people started pissed. coming to Obama in bigger numbers. When that fairy tale comment was, and made. I write about the whole campaign and how I yeah. felt kind of really hurt, quite honestly, mm-hmm. by some of the racial undertones that we were Absolutely. emerging from the the Clinton camp as that primary campaign got very intense particularly yeah. around South Carolina, as you'll recall. Oh, absolutely. That was such a pivotal moment. It's interesting because most of the black support was for Hillary for a long time, yes. right? And it kind of, once the voting started, and people were like, wait, Obama's got a chance? You know, white people in Iowa can vote for him? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> wait, wait a minute. Wait, hold up. Let's take a look at this. <laughs> but it was like President Clinton had this shovel that he was kept digging a bigger hole in a bigger hole, it seemed like at the time. Well, you know, mm-hmm. people may forget that, you know— the, Clinton was jokingly referred to as America's first black president. Yeah, I never made that joke. I don't. I didn't either. Yeah. But there were some who did. No, I remember. And you know, I, I write in the book about Eric Holder and I mm-hmm. going to visit a, a senior African American member of Congress, uh, the late Donald Payne, um, who was a friend of both of ours and a wonderful man and a real champion of all things related to Africa. And I knew him well, and we went to try to convince. Congressman Payne to be an early endorser of Obama. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, mm-hmm. you know, Clinton is Clinton's my guy. So right. therefore, Hillary's my woman. And, you know, this young upstart is, you know, disrupting everything, upstart. upending the apple cart. Mm. I'm putting, I'm paraphrasing. He was more polite. But basically, yeah. that, that boy I don't can't, know his place. I, What's right. he trying to do? No, but he's trying to mess everything up for us. That's basically. <laughs> 
Yeah, but then we had a little yeah. sidebar about Cory Booker, who at the time was, you know, right. mayor of Newark. What upstart. you doing, boy? Get yourself back in that house. Don't be messing with Massa over here. <laughs> so, uh, and we, so we walked out of there totally defeated. He's like, no, nah, not, I'm not doing this. And that was the way a lot of the black establishment was. You know, Absolutely. we were down with Clinton. He's been there for us. Right. And we're not, we're not going to be with this young brother that we don't know anything about. Uh-huh. People kind of remember s- that? Oh, I remember it absolutely. <laughs> I was uh, I was doing senior black correspondent on the Daily right. Show in those days, <laughs> and I had many uh, many many things on this that were so much fun to talk about. Just coming at it from my particular point of view. You know? <laughs> um, ap- so after things settled down, because you're in the the most historic election of all time. I mean, it's I can only imagine. I mean, for us on the outside, it was you know, this miracle thing that happened and everything. I can only imagine what it felt like on the inside. Once things settled down, like, what was your observation of Obama? Do you remember having an observation about him as president at first? Like, were you thinking, okay, all right, okay, good on you. Was it that type of thing? Like, okay, well, let's see how this goes. (laughs) Like, once it all settled down, did you have any observations like that? Well, you know, the the thing about Obama Mm -hmm. is he's really consistent. So. I could see even, you know, before the campaign, but especially during the campaign as he was taking his knocks mm-hmm. and having to, you know, figure out how to cobble together a successful effort, yeah. that he was, you know, he had this calm. He had this confidence. Mm-hmm. And then the financial crisis hit, remember, during Absolutely. the latter part of the campaign. And right. John McCain, you know, sort of starts flailing mm-hmm. uh, and being very inconsistent and unsteady on economic policy. Yeah. And Obama was very— driven, very focused, very calm, and assembled a team to really focus on what would he do day one when he got in there to deal with the, the financial crisis. And so that was really the defining issue when we came into office in 2009. Right. I'm up at the UN in New York, and I'm working on trying to reestablish American leadership and our bona fides with the rest of the, mm-hmm. the world, which had suffered because of the Iraq War and some of Bush's policies as they related to um, uh you know, developing countries in particular. Mm. But my impression of Obama was is has always been consistent. You know, he is calm under fire. Mm-hmm. He is steady. And that's what he exhibited even from day one as president. He didn't sort of get in there and give you the impression that, you know, I don't know what I'm doing, so give me a few give me a few minutes to get my bearings. <laughs> and actually, you know, mm-hmm. and to be honest, I felt like at the beginning of the Clinton administration, even though I was obviously not as close to uh, the top to to be able to see it that mm-hmm. it did take us some time to get our sea legs. Yeah, I didn't have that same sense uh, in the early stages of the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like, okay, we got this. You know, d- don't nobody mess up. We because this is like high stakes stuff. The expectations on all of us were really high. Um, but it didn't feel like we were shaky. Yeah, and there was something very specific that you had to attend to, which was the economy and all right. that kind of stuff. You know. Did um now the promise of Obama in two thousand four when you talk about that was his unifier, you know. And the way he swept into office had some of that. Of course there was a lot of partisanship as there always is, but I always felt Obama unjustly was supposed to be the racial janitor, you know. And <laughs> you know, I'm like, why is Obama the race janitor? Why has he got to clean up all, all the everybody's mess? history and mess? <laughs> yes. That's a great term. I he, love that. Oh well, thank you very much. But um but on the other hand, I feel this is a criticism of the president, and I don't know if it's warranted. It may be unwarranted, you know. But I I did think that he may have lost an opportunity to be a certain type of uniter. Um, but it seemed like— Tell me more what, what you mean by that. 
Well, I think there is an opportunity because of the financial crisis to engage uh, America together trying to do something rather than as Democrats trying to accomplish Democratic goals, maybe, or that sort of thing, you know. And, you know, it may be an unnecessary wish or whatever, but it seemed like there was an opportunity that seemed to be missed. And there are a lot of reasons why. I think Republicans— you know, we're against him in many ways. From Remember the what Mitch McConnell Absolutely. said from day one? My job is to make sure that he doesn't get a second term. I'm going to oppose him every that. step of yeah. the way. You know, the stuff that Rush Limbaugh said. But I do think as president, are there ways to, even though those things are said, and this is where I said it may be naive and maybe unfair, to go above that and to get around that? Do you sit down with someone like that? You know, because you've done a lot of back channeling. You know, you talk about this work that you kind of have to do. You have to build relationships in different ways, even when certain things are said on the outside. Um, I didn't know, and once again, I may be wrong, if that kind of stuff was being done. I don't know. Well, I think there's a Mm -hmm. perception, and I would call it a misperception, that somehow Obama didn't want to engage Republicans in Congress because, Mm -hmm. you know, he wasn't going golfing with them on Sundays or (laughs) whatever. No, I don't think (laughs) look at it like that. But somehow, you know, he was, you know, governing from one side. He tried really hard. Look, remember that if the defining issue in 2009 was recovering from the financial Mm -hmm. crisis, we had the stimulus package. We had all of this investment that could have been, should have been supported on a bipartisan basis to lift the economy out Mm -hmm. of crisis. Uh, and the kinds of investments that you know that were involved in the stimulus package were infrastructure and were green you know green energy and all kinds of stuff that that could benefit districts across the country um and yet it was very difficult even in crisis to bring republicans along with the enterprise of trying to save the the domestic economy mm-hmm. and the global economy and i think thereafter i mean the, one of his biggest uh, and most difficult challenges was the debt ceiling, if you'll recall, mm-hmm. some years later. Right. And, you, and again, there, like, that's kind of existential for the future of the country. Yeah. And it, it was very difficult uh, in that context to bring Republicans along. In the meantime— Yeah, they always use that as that bargaining tool. Right. You know, that so sort. I don't think—I really don't think, and, mm-hmm. and this is from somebody who was close up in it, that it wasn't for lack of trying. I think the president mm-hmm. and the vice president, who had spent years in the Senate, were very, very— interested in trying to bring both sides together to deal with these challenges. Was the president frustrated by it? Of course. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it became—Mitch McConnell called it from day one. Mm-hmm. He basically said, look, my job is to make sure this man doesn't get reelected. We're not mm-hmm. going to do anything to cooperate with him. And he held to that from day one through Merrick Garland through the end of the administration. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then the question became, if that's what you're dealing with, how do you get stuff done? And the, so the president's you know, top— Domestic priority, apart from, you know, economic recovery, was, of course, the Affordable Care Act. Mm-hmm. And that was a bruising battle that was won on the backs of Democrats in isolation. We couldn't bring any of Republicans along despite trying to, to do so. So it became clear early on that if he was going to get anything done, he was going to have to do it through a combination of working with members of his own party primarily, bringing, you know, handfuls of Republicans where he could. Uh, and he was going to have to use the the ability and authorities that you have as an executive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, that's not the way anybody, I think, would prefer to govern. But it's yeah, the only way he could govern. With too much executive action because it's too easily overturned, as we've seen. Right? Yeah. And, and <laughs> well, know. and Trump's taken it to an extraordinary oh, it's, extreme. It's, it's crazy, as he is. Um, mm-hmm. Let's talk about Benghazi for a second because that's something that affected you personally, as we said in the beginning. Um, what is the biggest mischaracterization about that event? 
About the event or about mm-hmm. my— About the event. Or maybe about your role in, in talking about it or whatever. Okay. So as mm-hmm. folks will possibly recall, this is 2012, mm-hmm. September, in the middle of the height of the election, re-election of Obama against Romney. Right. And on September 11th, there were terrorists who attacked our diplomatic facilities in Benghazi, Libya. Mm-hmm. And we lost four Americans, horrifically and tragically, including our ambassador, Christopher Stevens, Mm -hmm. who was a colleague and a friend of mine. And the events of the week in Benghazi were also occurring in the context of attacks and riots going after our embassies in various parts of the Arab and Muslim world. They weren't terrorist attacks, but they were sort of mob demonstrations and efforts to breach the walls of our embassies. Mm. And I was asked by the White House on the Friday night to go on the Sunday shows, all five of them, to talk about not only what had happened in Benghazi, but what had happened elsewhere in the Arab and Muslim world, and also to talk about the upcoming annual meeting of the UN General Assembly, which was Mm -hmm. coming in about 10 days. And wasn't there another event? There was like protests over a movie or something? Well, that's, yeah. So there was this Innocence of Muslims movie that was very offensive to Islam. There were demonstrations. And that's what was prompting the demonstrations in many right. of these other capitals against our facilities. Got it. Okay. So I was asked to go on the Sunday shows. It wasn't what I wanted to do that weekend. It wasn't what I was planning to do. As I write in the book, I was taking my kids to the Ohio State football game uh-huh. in Columbus, Ohio. I wasn't planning to have to go on the Sunday shows. And I did take them to the game, by the way, and came back and, and did the shows. And I also describe how my mother, when I told her that's what I was going to be doing, warned me not to go on the shows. She said, I smell a rat. <laughs> and I was like, what are you talking about? I've done this many times before. She's like, no, this, where is Hillary? Where are other people who should be going on the shows? And left? I asked that question of the White House when they mm-hmm. asked me to do it. They said that they had asked her and a couple others, and they were unable, unwilling, tired, emotionally spent, whatever it was, to go on. And frankly— my instinct then and my instinct always is to be a team player mm-hmm. and to not – I wasn't right. thinking about myself. I was thinking about, you know, the administration's had a horrible week. We got to have somebody out there on the shows. This was not w- what I wanted to be doing. But mm-hmm. if they asked and, and I was the next best person to do it, I wasn't going to say no. How long after the event were you speaking on the shows? Do you remember? Yeah. If the was attack occurred hours, like – no, it was like – hours. If the attack was, I, I have to go back and look, but I think it was mm-hmm. a Tuesday and this was Sunday. Okay, so there was a good several maybe days four in between. or five days. Okay, got it. And so I Because there were things that were said immediately afterwards that were a little confusing because some of it was tied to some of the first reports. I don't know if these were official reports. People thought it was part of that demonstration, that movie thing. That's That was the conflation in the beginning. And people were saying that. It was this spontaneous thing that erupted because of that. And then people said, well, this is September 11th. (laughs) You know, this seems like a purposeful type of thing that was planned. Why didn't we know about it? Like those two stories seem to be competing with each other. That's absolutely right. And so what I— I got that right. (laughs) (laughs) So what I was asked to explain to the American people was based on talking points that were written and cleared by the intelligence community. And what they represented was our current best understanding of what had happened. And I was Mm -hmm. careful to caveat it and say, you know, this is what we know now. It could change, but here's what we understood. Mm -hmm. And I knew that information to be accurate as our best understanding because I'm reading the intelligence. Mm -hmm. What was the the summary of that information? The summary was that we believe that what had happened in Benghazi 
was that the demonstration that occurred in Benghazi mm-hmm. that escalated into the attack on our diplomatic facilities had been inspired by inv- events in Cairo 24 hours mm-hmm. earlier where the Cairo embassy had been breached by demonstrators who were angry about the video. Okay. So that's what I said. What people heard was that I had blamed Benghazi on the video, which is mm-hmm. not what I said, but I that became urban legend. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, as I say in the book, you know, I, I could and should have been more precise to mm. eliminate that elision of, of understanding. Okay. But in any event, I adhered carefully to the talking points that were our best understanding of what had happened. And then some seven to 10 days later, the information from the intelligence community changed. And what changed was, then there were various iterations, but the bottom line is there was no demonstration, we now believe, Mm -hmm. at our facility in Benghazi. And that was the big ultimate piece of misinformation that I conveyed. Right. But rather than it being understood as— But you conveyed it as it came to you. Of it course. wasn't like you had these pieces of information. That, and I made you know, it up. let's go with this right, right now. No. I, 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 and then at the right time, when, when everybody trashes us, we'll give them this. Right. No, it was right. it, there was no <laughs> absolutely no effort to mislead or misrepresent. But in any event, in the hothouse of a political season, I was branded a liar. Well, people blamed—I not mean to interrupt you, but— just give them more context because it was, I think we're in the middle of the debates or they had started. They're about, to, yeah, they're, they're getting, about getting. to start. Um, the claim at the time, if I remember, was that Obama might look weak if people thought this was a terrorist attack. And that was the right wing claim, but he that's, called that's it saying, an act right. of terrorism the next day. He said it from the beginning. He I, said it I from the beginning. That. And then, exactly. it, and, and then this became an issue in the next debate in October. Right. right. Um, but the, but from my perspective. I was branded a liar. I was branded incompetent, Mm. untrustworthy. And uh, it went off to the races from there. Mm. When the reality was I was giving what we had, uh, you know, at the moment and the information changed. Mm -hmm. And so fast forward, eight congressional committees investigated all aspects of Benghazi, Mm -hmm. uh, including the so-called talking points and my role in delivering the talking points. Not one of those committees found that I had deliberately misled the American Mm -hmm. people including the most infamous investigation led by Trey Gowdy. By your boy, Trey my Gowdy. Boy. I was just going to say, my boy. your boy, Trey Gowdy. <laughs> <laughs> you beat so. me to it. <laughs> Lord have mercy. Who's now, I guess, anyway. Yes, exactly. So this was a case of, you know, once you're branded a certain way, mm-hmm. that becomes, an, at least in some quarters, the prevailing perception. Mm. My opinion on this period, uh, I thought, man— Republicans aren't kidding around when it comes to some of these issues. The first thing I thought they were trying to do is not get Obama reelected. And when that didn't work, I honestly feel the whole point was to weaken Hillary Clinton, who they saw on the horizon. I saw all of those so-called Benghazi investigations. I mean, you were, I feel, collateral damage in the attempt to weaken Hillary Clinton as a candidate. Well, I was first collateral damage in an effort to weaken Obama. Correct. And then I, I was actually not really relevant to the effort to weaken Hillary. Yeah, by that point. But at that point, yes, it was, it, yeah. they'd moved on yeah. from well, me. That and didn't I, work. <laughs> so, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I'm very cynical about that whole Benghazi I, thing. I, I feel like you. It was very tragic. It was sad. And this is kind of the messiness of the world that you know better than any of us. Because you, ha- you have information I'm sure you still can't share about some of the messiness that comes across, that's come across your desk, I'm sure, over the years. Right? Absolutely. Um. Uh, you know. Yeah, you just a bunch of stuff one takes to their grave. Um, 
real quick, right now, well, let me ask you about what's going on now. Um, and thank you so much again for being here. You no, know, it's just great. Wanna, I'm really glad to me, be here. You play too much of your time here, but since you're here, I want to try to get <laughs> squeezing as much yeah, as yeah, I yeah. can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a know? lot going on. Um, Oh, but by the way, when I first learned about you too, I love the fact that you love to cuss so much. That was like my favorite thing. <laughs> I was like, There's a few words in the book too. As you I see. was like, God, I love Susan Rice. I don't even know her, but I know that I love her, you know. And I walked by you when I was uh, at the White House once and I wanted to say something, but then I was kind of like shy about it. So I didn't Aww. say anything. But I was very happy that, you know, kind of brushed by you or that type of thing. Um, but anyhow, um, off of that personal thing. Oh, here's what I want to ask you about. Um, because I don't, I don't hear talk about Snowden that much. And I love that you have this in the book. Because I had a very similar, maybe an unpopular opinion for kind of what I do, you know. And my whole point of it from a comic standpoint, I said, you know what? Sometimes secret shit should probably stay secret shit. <laughs> That's kind of the point of having secret shit. Right. Exactly. Otherwise, why do you have secret shit? You know, there's sometimes there's a point to it. Exactly. Let's talk about Snowden because not all whistleblowers are the same. Is that? Well, first of all, I don't consider Snowden a whistleblower. If right. he were a whistleblower, he would have taken his concerns to the proper authorities the way the let's whistleblower people, just did. Let's remind people exactly what happened. Right. There. So mm-hmm. Edward Snowden was a contract employee with the National Security Agency. Mm-hmm. And he stole vast quantities of very, very, very sensitive documents, uh, the most highly classified information. And he escaped, left the country in possession of those stolen documents. Didn't he go to China first? He first went to Hong Kong. Oh, Hong Kong, right, right. right. Which, of course, is, you know, still part wanna, of China. I don't want to Daryl Murray no, no, that. No. <laughs> <laughs> Let no. me give him my LeBron no, sticker real no, quick. No. That, you know, it is territory that the Chinese... Control. I understand exactly what it is. So, yes, you could say he went to Hong Kong Mm -hmm. and took that information with him and selectively leaked large quantities of it to the press, putting Mm -hmm. out into the public domain information that, bottom line, made the United States hugely less safe. What was he trying to prove in the beginning? Like, what was. I can't. I don't look. I don't. I'm not going to characterize what he's trying to prove. Mm -hmm. You know, he's got his. You know, his own explanation. He's a <laughs> right. hero in his own mind. Right. But he, he stole this information. He put it, gave it to the press such that that information became public and mm-hmm. undermined our security in a tr- tremendous way. And then he went to Russia, where he still is. And he's sitting there with access to all that information. I, what do you think he did with it? You mm. think the Russians just said, you know, here, have an apartment, you, you know, have your girlfriend, have a nice life. Mm-hmm. But, you know, just, we don't need anything from you. How much, no problem. How much damage did he do in just the relationships with our allies and that sort of thing? Because there was a lot of accusations about wiretapping and listening the, the, and that the, type the, of stuff. And I write about this extensively in the book about mm-hmm. how it affected um, our relationships with key <laughs> you, you partners. You talk about Merkel screaming in German. I talk about Merkel screaming in German. I talk about Dilma Rousseff <laughs> yes. of, of Brazil slapping the table and yeah, that's going great. off on Obama like he'd stepped out on her. It was crazy. That's awesome. That's <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> I bet you cleaned that up for the book. Too. <laughs> yeah, pretty, I, I don't speak Brazilian, so I don't know quite how bad it got. <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah. were Portuguese, right. I should say. Yes, it was Portuguese. But, um, yeah, uh, it did a great deal of damage. Mm. Uh, and Obama and our team worked very, very hard to try to repair to the best of our ability. But the that damage was real and was very frustrating. But... What, it's what Americans and the rest of the world can't see. This is one of those things where what I know I can't share. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, so in a, in a, on a certain level, I'm asking people to trust that when I say that people can't begin to understand the damage he did to our national security, mm. I really mean it. And our ability as a U.S. government to protect the American people mm-hmm. from the worst kinds of dangers was gravely damaged by Edward Snowden. And that's why I call him a traitor. And yeah. I really believe it. And traitor is like the last word of the chapter, not even the sentence. <laughs> you know, you're you're clear about that, um, which is um, it seems like President Trump now, it seems like he's debased the term by calling every <laughs> yes. one of his political yeah, opponents a traitor. But uh, but Snowden, to me, kind of undermined the role of our intelligence, you know, our intelligence machine, I'll call it, you know, in a way, you know, that to me is not helpful in a part of the government that is we need drastic we really need that part of government to work efficiently you know whether people want to believe it or not but i feel trump unbelievably is doing the same thing um, well he's doing much worse because he's the president he, of the united states yes he's doing it from he's the not Republic. you know right some contractor with a beef what is your feeling about like the, you know i think we would both agree he's, he's doing much harm to the world and to the country it, do you think that's at the center of the most harm he's doing? He's undermining the government itself, like in the the, the tools that we need in order to be effective in the world. He, he's the anti-president mm-hmm. in the sense that much of what he does is designed to weaken and harm the country he's it's responsible for leading. leading. It, it's unbelievable to me. I completely agree. And you can, you know, whether it's undermining mm. our alliances, cozying up to dictators, yeah. denigrating you know, the institutions of our intelligence community, our law enforcement, our Congress, our courts, our press. And he is a human wrecking ball trying to destroy our government and our democracy. I don't think that's too extreme a statement. No, I agree with you. And, you know, we've never had in the White House somebody who was trying to destroy our country. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm afraid we have now. Well, thank you so much. Can we end <laughs> no. on a more optimistic note? Yes. Here's what we'll end on. Um, who do you like? Uh, well, a couple of things. Do my Lakers have a chance this year? You know what? I can't help you with that. I, um, I don't know. Are you a Nationals fan? I am a Nationals you're from fan. DC. I am a Nationals fan. And I'm hopeful about that. You beat that. my Dodgers. Do you think they're going to take it? I hope they will. I think they can. It would be a great story. It right? would be a great story. So, you know, we just had the Mystics, our women's basketball team, win yeah. the national championship. Of course, we had the Caps yeah. you know, win <laughs> right. the Stanley Cup. Right. Redskins are hopeless, yes. but <laughs> but you know the Nets, the Nets could show something. The Nets might do it. Yeah. Um, last thing, Democrats, who's got a chance? Who's got a realistic chance? I think almost all of them have a realistic chance of beating Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we have you know a number of strong candidates in the field. I haven't endorsed anybody at this point. You're backing your boy Biden. I haven't endorsed anybody. I mm-hmm. like Joe Biden enormously. Uh, mm-hmm. I think we'd be very fortunate to have him as president. Mm-hmm. I like some of the other candidates as well. Mm-hmm. And I want to see how this plays out. At this point in my career, I can afford to to watch and see. And I've been, you know, supportive and offered advice to those who've asked. So I'm kind if of equal opportunity at this if point. If you were offered Secretary of State, would you take it? It depends on who the president is. Wow. Honestly. We'll I mean, I'd, <laughs> <laughs> and it also depends on you know, what's going on in my personal life. If my kids are, mm-hmm. you know, on a... Firm path, yeah. My kids are sick and tired, specifically say, my daughter, yes. of my service. <laughs> they're getting to the age like, like, Mom, please, yes, go back n- no, to No, no, they're, like, they're <laughs> like sick of it. I'm waiting for my daughter to get out of high school, at which point I, yeah. I can have more freedom to do what I want to do. But if it were for somebody that I thought I could serve effectively mm-hmm. and that I 
like and respect and trust. Yes. Right. Or some other type of contribution. Mm-hmm. But having worked for President Obama, quite honestly, and you know, very closely for eight years, right. the bar for me is high. I would think so. You can't sing uh, the happy birthday song. To- <laughs> You have to explain that. I know. So, That's for people got to read the book to understand that comment. The book. Tough love, you guys. My story of the things worth fighting for. Like I said, it's such an endearing book in so many ways because there's so much context for just black life in the 20th century through her parents, the things they've gone through. This particular, your particular story is just a great story. Um, I have so much admiration for you. Thank you and, so um, much, Larry. Yeah, it's and I so hope nice you, you are in a position of leadership. And we need people like like you out there. We really do. Thank you so much. Go thank buy you. the book, you guys. Tough love. Susan Rice, thank you Thank so you. Much. Really appreciate it.